Gary's going to say something interesting at any point, and I don't want to lose it. <laughs> Always leave the recorder going, even after you say goodbye. Thank you very much. It was great talking to you. And by the way, you stabbed the guy. Let me get that on. Oh, no, I turned off the recorder. <laughs> <laughs>
somebody writes a blog post that's just not true. But now these tools allow you to write, you know, as many copies and variations on themes as you want, as fast as you want. So let's say that you would like to persuade people that vaccines are bad and you shouldn't take them. Well, you can ask one of these things. You might want to evade the guardrails, and we can talk about that in ChatGPT per se. But you use a large language model, maybe a different one like Galactica that you could get on the dark web now. And you can say, write me stories about the negative consequences of vaccines and include references. And it will go ahead and it will make a story about something that was published in the Journal of American Medical Association that said that only 2% of people saw a benefit, which is not true. There's no article, there's no 2%. And then you hit the refresh button and now you got another article and it says it was the Lancet and it was 4%. And you know you can write a little macro to do this. And in a few minutes, you can have 20 or 30 or 50 or 100 stories. And yes, it's true that like if you're not Joe Rogan and you disseminate this, not as many people are going to listen. But if you can disseminate disseminate millions of copies, some of them will stick. It's just going to change the dynamics of veracity. And I think this is going to play into the hands of fascism. It's also going to make search engines less useful because the chances are that you, when you look for something that you actually get what's real and not garbage is, is, is you know, going to change and not in a good way. I asked ChatGPT, what is the most controversial question you would ask Gary Marcus on a podcast? And it said, Gary, in your work as a researcher and entrepreneur in the field of AI and machine learning, you've been known for being critical of deep learning and advocating for more symbolic and rule-based approaches. Given the recent advancements and success of deep learning in various applications, how do you reconcile your stance with the current trend in the industry? It's not a bad question. I would say that it misrepresents me in a way that I'm frequently misrepresented. It's not unique to chat. Um, it's, by the way, the first time chat's ever proposed a question to me. So there's some landmark in all of that. What I have actually proposed are hybrid systems that are a mix of symbolic and pure deep learning. And it doesn't get that nuance. It thinks that I'm purely advocating for symbolic. Then again, Jan LeCun has made that mistake a few times even after I've corrected him. So it's not unique in the history of society that, that such a question should be made. How would I reconcile it? I think it's actually an interesting question. What I would say is that we have made a lot of partial progress, but that a lot of partial progress is an illusion if the real goal is artificial general intelligence. That what we have now is this interesting technology that it's a, a, a jack of all trades, but master of none. Nothing, I think, that you can fully count on it. The best applications are actually things like coding, where you have a professional whose whole job is to debug garbage, right? This is what you do as a coder. You're like, ah, shit, I left out the parenthesis here. And, and, and you know, it, it's caused me all these problems an hour later. And now I have to go back and figure out what, the, what that problem was. And so people who code for a living, if they're any good at it, are good at debugging. So having some code that is imperfect, they're, they're already accustomed to that and they can work with it. But imagine like, let's say you're a journalist and you say, I'm going to get chat to write an article, or I'm not sure it was actually chat that did this for CNET, but I'll have a large language model. You're not as accustomed to the kinds of errors that it makes and, and you wind up in trouble. In general, these systems are not reliable. They're brilliant in one way, which is we've always had very narrow AI. So AlphaGo, you can't go to AlphaGo and say, okay, now I want you to fold proteins. That's actually a different system, even though they're kind of nomologically similar or something like that. But um, there's some shared mechanisms. There's a lot of mechanisms that are not shared. Most AI we've ever seen before is kind of like it does one thing. Sometimes it does that one thing very well. So a navigation system very well gets you from point A to point B. 
chat will do an impression of anything. It will pretend to debug your code. It will pretend to write a letter. It will pretend to write a biography. But the problem is it does none of it in a trustworthy way. So if you, I don't know if you've experimented with having chat write your biography, but most people's experience when they do is it makes up a bunch of plausible stuff. So like it makes up a college, but you didn't go to that college. It makes up a research specialty if you're a researcher, but it's like it's in the general area. Like Lee Cronin posted about this. It made up different areas of chemistry than he actually worked in, some of which weren't really real areas of chemistry or which nobody would describe them that way. Made up references as if he had worked in these areas of chemistry that he hadn't. And this is a pretty typical thing. So we have this, as I said, master of none AI. It's kind of general, but it's not very good. Like the way I reconcile my love for partly symbolic systems with the apparent success of these is these things approximate almost anything, but approximating something is not the same thing as solving it. One of the things that you mentioned before was in some of these responses from the chat GPT that they're constructing a bio and they're effectively just bullshitting. And it got me thinking that, you know, there's this subtle difference, although a definitional one between bullshitting and lying. One is, you know, attempting to just sort of fake it and persuade somebody. The other is overtly knows that it's not true and is purporting it to be fact when Either it's not. If I can interject for a second, as you construct it, because I was no bullshitting intent- you about, about the difference between bullshitting and lying. That's right. So these systems are definitely not lying with intent. I tend to think of lying with intent. You could even say that. Humans bullshit with intent. They're trying to fool other people. And there's no intent from these systems. It's just what they do. So they will lie about COVIDs and vaccines because they steal that from some human in a database. But also, they can't keep track of the connections between bits of information very well. You could think of them as like a very lossy compression scheme, and they uncompress and all kinds of crap happens. So it's not done with intent. It comes up with something you kind of call bullshit but it's not trying to fool you. It's just making guesses. One of the questions I have, obviously one of the big goals here is to get to AGI, you know, uh, artificial general intelligence. And there's been these two directions. You have this very specific focused application-driven AI. So you talked about AlphaGo, AlphaFold, where you have these really constrained domains, you have symbolic systems, you can develop rules, and we actually have really high fidelity. AlphaFold has done really, really well uh, based on experiments in the last couple of months. We've seen AlphaGo's performance. But then there was sort of this block because there's just sort of endless numbers of domains that you have to apply AI to develop systems for each of these. And so the whole industry moved to this statistical method, which was Markov chains, probabilities, language, None of the facts are actually built in. It has no foundation whatsoever. Everything is built on on, on sand, essentially. Um, but we seem to have made enormous amounts of progress. Your view, if I understand, is... Very big sandcastles. Very big sandcastles. Sand my question is, is, if we're trying to approach AGI, it seems like we've made a lot more progress on the statistical side over the last couple of years versus the symbolic side, which you know was at the core of the AI revolution. I'm thinking Dartmouth 1960s into the 80s, went through the kind of the winter. When I was doing linguistics in, in the 2000s, like it's considered a little bit of a moribund field, like symbolic systems had kind of reached its you know, end point, we didn't know where to go next. And this was the big revolution. Do you think we go back that direction? Is there a synthesis that kind of combines the two together? Um, Or should we be throwing out the statistical side altogether? Isn't that though, just because we have like 
the systems like Go or even protein folding, they're parametrically constrained. Like there is a correct answer, a right answer, versus the latent space of infinite possibilities that we see in art and language and creativity. So, I mean, part of the thesis of my 2019 book with Ernie Davis, Rebooting AI, was that we only know how to build narrow AI right now. And we can consider the statistical approaches. GPT wasn't popular, but we said these are not in the end going to work. And I stand by that. You know, I think what we said then is true. There's no doubt that symbolic AI on its own failed. There are certain excuses that are worth considering. So there was a lot less data available then. There was a lot less compute then. So it's a little bit of an unfair fight to say that 2023, you know, clusters that use up the, you know, energy budget of New Jersey for a week are crushing things that you know would fit on my Apple Watch with a lot of room to spare. Like that's not entirely a fair fight, but I still think in the end that pure symbolic AI is probably not going to work, and certainly not without better learning systems. So you know another thing we know now that they didn't really know was how important learning is. It wasn't all the data to even think about it. So it could be that if we did symbolic AI with better learning algorithms on modern machines with modern amounts of data, you might actually get a lot further than people got in the 1960s. I don't think that's unreasonable to expect. And we do still use some symbolic AI. For example, in turn-by-turn navigation, it's pure symbolic AI. It works great. We use it every day and we love it. So, you know, symbolic AI is not as dead as people think it is. And we also have systems at scale that use symbolic AI and people forget this. Like Google search until recently was almost pure symbolic AI. And now it's actually hybrid AI. So Google search still has lots and lots of custom rules and, and um, symbolic algorithms and stuff like that. And it has things like, what is it called? Um, deep rank that are, that are neural networks. I don't think it's the principled synthesis that we need. I think, you know, Google search from what I understand has been a lot of like throw and see what sticks. And it's, it's not like a fundamental research insight and maybe we need one, but it is actually a point in favor of, of the synthesis. Gary and I have great riffs on these things when when he's talking about startup ideas. And, and we had a great one years ago where we were talking about the problem with robots and that robots, particularly like the Roombas, would go into a room and they would have the intention, quote unquote, to go clean a room. But if there was dog shit there, they were going and spreading that shit everywhere <laughs> around like a pancake, like a Nutella. There's actually a word for that, the poopocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I proposed... Uh, Gary was thinking about how do we get robots to do all kinds of more sophisticated stuff and actually navigate the world, not in this plane or two dimensional or three dimensional way. But, and so I said, you know, one key metric would be cool would be the MTTFU, I think. Is that what I called it? Do you remember what that was? It was the mean time between fuck ups. Exactly. Which is still, you know, should be the number one measurement in this world. So, so much of what we've been talking about has been text-based and search retrieval and, you know, being able to generate and, and the validity or veracity of what is generated. Let's talk for a moment about some of the other creative fields, particularly art and music. And in both cases, you know, you could make the case that art feels totally unconstrained. You know, anything could be art. People can create surrealism, geometric designs. They can change the color palettes. You know, there's recognizable artists, but it feels like it's infinite variations. Music, obviously there's constraints, but same sort of thing. You're starting to see debates or you have been seeing debates about are computers creative their ability to actually generate stuff obviously it still requires human prompts the more sophisticated the prompts you can make the argument the more constrained it is but i've been just utterly 
feeling awe looking at some of the results, whether it's from Midjourney or Dolly or Stability or whatever comes next. And the same thing I can see in the same way, like early YouTube videos were like 240 and then they got 480 and then, you know, 4K, that the refusion, the, some of the models for music generation, they start out really tinny and crappy, but it feels like it's a matter of time before I'm able to say, give me, you know, Life of Agony, a heavy metal band I like playing a Bob Marley song and it will generate that. I think we will get there. I mean, there was Microsoft Songsmith. I don't know if you remember back in the day um, that tried to do this stuff and it, it sounded pretty lousy in the end. There's definitely been progress in the music domain. And I think musicians in particular, music producers in particular, have a long history of saying whatever new technology is there, let's use it. I mean, so electric guitar, we've never used that before. Let's see what we can do with it. The amplifier, well, what if, what if we, you know, blow it out and turn it up to 11? Synthesizers. In fact, harmony is a technology. Like people didn't always know all of what we know about Western music harmony. It was invented and, and people adopted it. And what I expect to happen with music tech is that people are going to use these tools. I think in the beginning, they're not going to do a song end to end. Like when I was a kid, I had this dream of having a station that would just automatically generate music for me with no intervention. Now you don't even need that because you just automatically pick music that human musicians have made and it's fine. But what I think we will see is people taking something, like there's a new system from Google where you type in text and it produces something. I think it's just pure audio and nicer version might give you MIDI files too. But you know, people will take that and they'll work with it. They'll use it in the same way you use a sample and why not? Like, I think there's a whole question around appropriation anytime you use samples. And there's a question here with the, where these systems are doing appropriations. There's a lot of questions about how the original artist should be reimbursed when the stuff is used. There are complicated questions. But from the perspective of, let's say, a producer who wants to make a song, why not try this out? It's sort of like a tool for brainstorming. You're probably going to end up like wanting to add your own vocal track because you're not going to get the expressiveness and the emotion that you would get from a human. And so you're probably going to add to it, but you know, um, why not? And I, I think we'll get interesting new music out of that. Although I will say so far, most of what I've heard is accomplished, but dull. Sounds like it's been professionally produced at some level, but isn't very interesting in another because fundamentally what these systems mostly do is they predict what's plausible given something. And so that tends to keep them inside the box and not outside the box. They're not going to figure out that conceptually you could think of a urinal as being art if you put it in a context. Like that takes a human, I think, to, to think about that. But within some parameters, as you say, they're, they're good at exploring those spaces. What, what else have we not asked you? What, what are the big controversial topics right now that you want to weigh in on that people are buzzing about the wrong thing? you know, convened around the hype around something and you're just like, want to scream at the masses that are being misled by the preacher. Don't you see, you know, the emperor's got no clothes. Like what, what are the two or three big sacred cows you want to slay? Well, I mean, if I could pick one, it's just that I would really like people to understand that artificial intelligence is not a universal solvent that really what we have are a bunch of different mechanisms. They each have their own strengths and their weaknesses. None of them are that, that great right now. They each, in certain co contexts, work very well. But for example, I think everybody thinks we have chat search, we just need more data. They don't understand that truth is just orthogonal to how it's built. People just, if they're not 
professionals in the field, and some even if they are, don't understand that these things are not actually intelligent. They kind of assume that it would just like consult the web. They don't understand that that's not built into the architecture, that, that architectures have properties that, you know, like when you design a bridge, I mean, first of all, the average person doesn't presume that they know anything about building bridges, but the people who do, you know, know about particular loads that they have to think about and know that particular materials respond in particular ways and particular designs have different advantages and disadvantages. You can use this one where you can, you know, build a support, but you can't use it in this other place. And AI is like that too. There are assumptions in architectures about what they can do. And we have this problem where people are attributing intelligence to systems that are really quite dumb and then imagining that they'll just get over their problems when there are inherent architectural limitations. And that's causing a lot of confusion. I will say, uh, we didn't talk about the article, but you did make a prediction for 2023. So uh, let's do a quick little rundown. You made a prediction for 2023. What was that prediction? That this would be the first year where there will be a death attributable to a large language model, which is a very dark prediction. But I think it could come to pass. How? Wait, wait give me the scenario. What 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 happens? And is it going to be me? So there, there are different possibilities. One it, is it's not me, a large right? language model gives. <laughs> it, it's not going to be me, right? I can't make that prediction. I hope not. <laughs> oh, no, um, I'm terrified. I mean, you're clear of the following circumstances. If you do not wish to be the first large language model, fatality, then do not take advice from a large language model. Do not eat what it tells you to eat. Do not drink what it tells you to drink. Do not commit suicide if it tells you that that's a good idea. Do not fall in love with the large language model because it might abandon you because it doesn't even know what love is. But somebody who doesn't take any of that advice might take advice from a large language model or develop a relationship and become rejected, feel rejected. And in that way, they might um, do themselves in either inadvertently or deliberately. And so, you know, watch out. I, I, it's terrifying and statistically probable. I mean, if there's a one in 10 million chance of some idiot following an AI's advice and there's 10 million idiots, like one of them is going to do it. That's right. I mean, I, I have no question. Well, I'll say that I have very little question that what I said is true. My only question is whether we'll know it. You know, somebody might commit suicide and not leave a note or they might drink Drano and we don't know what led them to drink the Drano. But we already have, for example, it was a Alexa that told a child to stick a penny in an electrical socket. And it happened that that child's mother was there and said, don't do that. But like we've already had what they call near misses, which is a stupid phrase because it's really near hit. We've had near death experiences from these things already. Like it is just a matter of time. So I thought it was actually a pretty safe prediction. The other, I, I actually made the prediction before chat GPT came out and the guardrails maybe changed the dynamic a little bit. But also a lot more people are using these things. And part of my premise was that a lot more people are going to use these systems. Like they're, they're probabilistic. They're not reliable. And so they are going to give some bad advice. I mean, they have, their, their cousins have killed people in driverless cars. And now the text versions probably will do the same. And it's a question of, you know, who and when and how many and so forth. So this was a more valuable podcast than I realized because it's good advice. Don't listen to your chatbots. They might kill you. <laughs> Chris, Chris and Danny, uh, this was amazing. Uh, the ability to generate 
a fake Gary Marcus through this entire thing, a Gary Marcus bot. What do you think the real Gary Marcus is going to think of this? I have no idea. I, I do He's know. He's going to think, you know, you made him look pretty good. You should edit the coughs and quotes. And quotes. <laughs> but otherwise, you made him look pretty oh, good. I thought so that was an authentic touch. Satisfied. I thought yeah, that was an authentic so touch. I'm told. It's an algorithm. We added coughs so that people would think that that Gary Marcus bot was the real Gary Marcus. <laughs> the authenticity. The authenticity. Well, Gary, so much, thanks so much for joining us. Gary or simulated Gary, thanks you very much. <laughs> See you again soon. See you soon.